Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It is the last Sunday, the last weekend before Christmas, and it's also the last week of our series, Greater. So in, this, in our seventh week now, we've been looking at each week a different key Old Testament person who we would consider, in most respects, great. And we've seen how they compare to Jesus. They were sort of a pre-reflection of who Jesus would be. But every time, every comparison, we've seen that Jesus is always greater than that person. He's a greater version of that person. So in our final week... We're going to approach this one a little bit differently. Normally, we look at the Old Testament figure all alone first, and then we look at Jesus and compare. Today, we're going to go back and forth between the two, and I think it's going to be a really powerful way to look at this connection between Jesus being a greater version of Isaac. This week, we're looking at Isaac. And it's kind of a two-for-one because we're also going to focus in on Abraham, Isaac's father, because without Abraham, there's no Isaac, right? But we're going to look at this relationship and also see how Jesus really compares, but in every way, again, is, is greater. So there's three things we're going to focus on this week with Isaac and looking at Isaac and Jesus and, and their comparison. The first thing that we see here is that Isaac was a child of promise. Isaac was a child of promise. So God spoke one day to this man named Abram, who becomes later Abraham, And he basically says, hey, Abraham, uh, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a mighty nation, and I'm going to give you a ton of descendants that will fill the earth. And Abraham's like, okay, that sounds cool. Let's follow that God. So he does. And then sometime later, he specifically promises that he will give him a son. Now, this is implied in the first encounter, descendants. Of course, to have descendants, you've got to have a son, at least one. And so then he makes this explicit promise, I'm going to give you a son. The only problem here is that Abraham is already really old. He and his wife are both way past childbearing years. And so, and even even once that promise is given, they have to wait. They have to wait for this promise. Let me ask you, how long would you wait for something to happen? You know, I think about Christmas time and especially our kids or when you, were, when you were a kid, you know, it's almost like torture when your parents put some gifts under the tree early. You know, Santa Claus has this thing figured out because he comes the night before when you're asleep, and so you just wake up and magically presents are there. But the presents you get from your parents or other family members, they sit under the tree sometimes for days, right? Days and days and days. It's torture. You have to wait. And I can remember me and my sister growing up, almost every year, I can remember, we would beg our parents, can we please open gifts early? At least, can we open a gift early? You know, and so it's just hard to wait. Waiting is difficult. How long would you wait for something? Would you wait till you were 100 years old? That's what Abraham had to do. Abraham had this promise of a son, of descendants, and he had to wait 
for it to happen until he was a hundred years old. Let me ask you this. While you're waiting, do you ever become impatient? You ever try to rush the process? You ever try to circumvent the process? You try to skip some steps maybe and it's like, wait, I have extra parts here. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Or you're cooking something in the oven and you hurry up, hurry up, and you crank the temp up and then you leave it in for too long and it burns. Ugh, not good. Or it dries out, not good. Or maybe you've been saving up for a big purchase, but you're like, I don't want to wait anymore. I want this thing. And so then you, you buy it and you don't have the money. And so then you go into debt for this thing that you could have just waited a little bit longer and saved for. We're so often so impatient. Abraham was too, so he had to wait. But in the meantime, in the waiting, he got impatient. He tried, to, he tried to force God's hand. He tried to do things his way. And he actually had a son before the son of the promise. And I won't get into all the details because we don't have time for that today. But this, this, these two sons, they had issues, right? The, the first son that wasn't the son that God promised because Abraham tried to make it happen his own way, in his own time, he didn't want to wait anymore, caused drama, caused a lot of family drama. And even to this day, causes a religious rift that has significant effects on our world even today. Abraham had a hard time waiting. But at the right time, God eventually came through and the child of promise, Isaac, was born. Let me ask you the same question again, though. How long would you wait for something? Would you wait 700 years for something to happen? Now, of course, you know you can't wait that long. But now we're going to fast forward. So there's this prophet, you know, a couple thousand years after, after uh, Abraham named Isaiah. And we referenced this scripture last week, but I want to reference it again. This prophet Isaiah in about in the 700s BC, he makes this prophecy, this prediction about this person, this man that Israel had been waiting for. And they continued to wait for called the Messiah. He would save them. He would reestablish Israel's kingdom on earth. You know, he would just rule with justice. And so in Isaiah 9, uh, Isaiah says, Unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This Messiah Israel waited for and waited for and waited for for 700 years after Isaiah made this prediction, this prophecy. In the meantime, there were people, men, mighty men, that rose up and people thought, they assumed, this is the guy. That's the Messiah. Over and over again, we saw this pattern, and they weren't. So like Abraham, it would have been easy for the people to say, yeah, he's the one. He almost fits the description. He must be the guy, and they could have chosen him as their Messiah, but it would have circumvented God's plan. But God's plan was different. So 700 or so years after Isaiah makes this prophecy, generation after generation have waited and waited and died and not seen it happen yet. But eventually, one day, one random night, this child of promise was born. And it's important, the timing of this is so important. So in Galatians 4, verse 4, Paul says this, But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So all the details of the birth of Christ, the birth of Jesus, this child of promise, match the predictions of Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets. But the most important thing was that it was exactly the right time, exactly the right moment. 
Let me ask you another question. What are you waiting for right now? What's a prayer that you've been praying and praying and praying and have yet to see answered? What's a promise that you feel God has given you but yet has not yet been fulfilled? What is that thing? Maybe you've been waiting for a long time. Let me encourage you, don't give up. Don't quit on God. But also, while you're waiting and not giving up, don't try to rush the process. Don't try to make it happen. It will not work. So be patient, be faithful, trust God, believe God, because in just the right time, I believe God will come through for you. So we have the child of the promise here, and now we get into the good, kind of the meat part of here of this Isaac Abraham story. But now we see that the promise is in peril. We see the promise in peril. Genesis 22, verse 1, it says this, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Here's what God tells Abraham. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. So God promised Abraham a son. And then God delivered on this promise of a son. And now, years later, God says, go sacrifice your son. Go kill this child of the promise. That sounds a bit confusing, doesn't it? It sounds a bit off. It sounds a bit weird. But Abraham, we'll talk about this more in detail in in a little bit. Abraham's faith was so solid and so strong in God that even though he didn't understand, he trusted. And he said, okay, God, I don't get it, but let's do it. He didn't understand, but he trusted. That's a big deal. So he takes his son Isaac. Now, here's the deal. He didn't tell Isaac, hey, I'm going to go sacrifice you on the mountain. All he told him was, hey, we're going to go worship God and and make a sacrifice up here on the mountain. We have to travel quite a ways out, travel up the mountain, so let's go together. And so Isaac went with him. But Isaac's a pretty smart guy here. We don't know how old he is, but he's, he's smart. And while they're on their journey, he, has, he notices something is missing, and he has a question. So skip down to the second half of verse number 6 of Genesis 22. Here's what Isaac says. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. Here's his question. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. So Isaac is trying to figure out, okay, we're going to make a sacrifice, but the animal is not with us. What's going on, dad? He's oblivious to what is about to happen to him. And while, Abraham, while Isaac's oblivious, Abraham, I can only imagine, is getting increasingly concerned, increasingly nervous. He tries to shield Isaac from, what, from the knowledge of what's about to happen. Obviously, as a good father, he's doing that. But internally, he's got to be in agony. I can only imagine he's probably thinking, am I really about to do this? And he's probably also thinking, is God really going to make me actually do this? And yet they just keep walking on, and then they keep walking and walking, and eventually they get there. Eventually, it's crunch time. 
and Abraham's looking around, and God is not going to bail him out. God is going to, yes, literally make him sacrifice his son. He's going to make him kill the child of the promise. So here's what happens. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, and Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Imagine this scene. Abraham doing what God's asked him to do, not understanding but obeying, not understanding but believing, not understanding but trusting in God's plan. So he makes this altar. He tells Isaac to get on the altar, and Isaac does it too. That's incredible. Ties him to this altar, and then with trembling hands, with a heavy heart, he takes this knife and is ready to kill, sacrifice his son, the son of the promise. Let's fast forward again about 4,000 years to Jesus. So Jesus, this new child of promise, has grown He's matured. He's become a rabbi, a Jewish teacher. But the kind of teaching that he is teaching is something unlike anything anyone's ever heard before. It's just totally new and revolutionary. And on top of that, he's also performing miracles, like multiplying food to feed multitudes, like healing diseases that have no cure, uh, like raising people from the dead, big deal. Jesus is doing a lot here. It is clear that God is with Jesus. It is clear that he is fulfilling his mission as this child of promise from years ago. However, what he's also doing is upsetting very powerful people. He is angering the wrong people. The highly respected, powerful religious elites in the Jewish community do not believe that he is the Messiah, even though other people see him as fulfilling that description of this promise. And so suddenly, one night, Jesus is arrested in the middle of the night. He is accused and found guilty of blasphemy, a capital crime, claiming he claimed to be not just speaking on behalf of God as a prophet, but he claimed to be God. So he is, he is found guilty of the crime of blasphemy. He's brought before the Roman government, and out of pressure from the Jewish people, they sentence him to crucifixion, probably the most brutal form of torture and death in the history of the world. But before the crucifixion, he's flogged. He is whipped nearly to death. Then he must carry the wooden beam of his own cross on his back through town and up a hill, just in the same way that Isaac and Abraham traveled up a hill to sacrifice Isaac, Jesus is now carrying his cross up a hill, which he is nailed to that cross, and then he dies. He physically, literally dies. You might think, well, how, how is that possible? How is this part of the plan? If he's the child of promise, if he's the one that they've been waiting for for years and years and decades and generations, he's dead. So it's not that the promise is in peril, it's that the promise is dead. All hope is now lost. Let's go back to the Abraham-Isaac story now. So Abraham's got the dagger up, ready to sacrifice his son per God's command. Verse 10, let's read this verse 10 again, Genesis twenty-two ten. 10. 
Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. Tension in the air. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Here's what the angel said. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. So the third thing that we see here in dealing with Isaac, looking at Isaac, is a last-minute miracle. Right? Now, Now we can breathe. Now the story has reached a conclusion that we can all be comfortable with, that we can all be happy with. God came through in the last minute, literally the last second, knife going, plunging down toward this boy, this young man, and then God's like, okay, 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 stop, 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 stop. I mean, he took his time, right? God took his sweet time in bailing out Abraham and Isaac here. This last-minute substitution saved the promise. But here's a question that maybe you've been asking yourself throughout this story. Maybe you've read this story, heard this story hundreds of times, and maybe here's the question you might have. How could Abraham have actually done this? How could he have actually gone through with this plan? Was he really willing to kill his son? The answer is yes, he was. But the other question, how could he do that? The answer to that is found in the New Testament book of Hebrews. It kind of gets us into the psyche of Abraham during this account. So the author of Hebrews is going back to this idea that even though Abraham didn't understand what God was doing or saying or instructing him to do, he still believed. He didn't understand but he believed. Because it says in Hebrews that Abraham's faith in God was so solid, so deep, that he knew that if God really was going to have him kill his own son, that God would raise him from the dead, if necessary, to still fulfill his promise. He was so determined to believe in God, he was willing to go through this agonizing really monstrous act because he knew God would keep his promise. So here's the key to Abraham and Isaac in this story. Abraham's faith and hope was not in the promise, but his faith and hope was in the promise giver. That's the key to this whole story. Abraham's faith was not in the promise itself, but was in the one who gave the promise. Where is your faith and your hope today? Is it in a promise that God's given you? Is it in hope of a prayer that you hope that God will answer for you? Or is it in God himself? This is an important difference. These are not the same things. It's an important difference and an important decision that we all must make. Where does our faith and hope truly lie? Is it in the promise or in the promise giver? Here's how that's different. If our hope is in the promise, the thing that we're praying for or hoping for, or the promise that God has given to us, God may decide to go in a different route than we think he will go. God may decide to work on a different timetable than we think he will. 
the answer may come in a totally different way than we envisioned. And if our hope is in the promise, working in a certain way at a certain time, even if God comes through, we will be disappointed in the promise. We'll be disappointed in the outcome. And really, we'll be disappointed in God. Well, God, I thought you were going to do it this way. Well, God, you took forever. What was the deal? This was a small thing that I was asking for. Or I didn't, I didn't see that coming at all, and I wish it had come a different way. It's not that miraculous. It's kind of an everyday sort of answer to prayer. Really, God? How, how awful if that's our response. But that, that's what we get. If our hope and our faith is in the promise or the unanswered prayer, that's going to be the result. But if our hope and our faith is in the promise giver, who is the promise keeper, then we will never be disappointed. In fact, we'll be in awe of what God chooses to do, how he chooses to answer the prayer, how he chooses to respond to our faith, how he chooses to come through when he chooses to come through. So if, if our faith is in him, then we're always going to be like, God, you blew me away again. You exceeded my expectation again. I never would have thought you'd have done it that way, but you did. We're just always going to be in awe. So don't be disappointed. Don't get your eye on the promise or the prayer or the thing yet to come. Keep your eyes on the promise giver because he is a promise keeper. That's the key here. Let's go back to Jesus, though. So we talked about the promise was in peril because Isaac wasn't dead yet, and God came through and saved the day. But Jesus is dead. The promise is dead. Hope is now gone. So, what's the last-minute miracle here? You may think you know what it is, but I want to turn the tables. I want to make a twist in the story here. The last-minute miracle in comparing Jesus to Isaac may not be what you think it is. In fact, I've kind of been deceiving you this whole time. We've been comparing Jesus to Isaac in this story. But in fact, Jesus is not Isaac in this story. We are Isaac in this story. So if Jesus is not Isaac in this story, then who is he representing? Who is he greater than? What, what makes him greater than this account? Well, we are Isaac, but Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket. You see, the last minute miracle for Isaac was a substitution to take his place. But the last minute miracle that this story represents is a miracle for us in that Jesus is our substitute. Isaac needed a substitute. Jesus is the substitute. So, again, sorry for the deception. Sorry for the last-minute trickeration here. uh, But that's the key to this story. Isaac needed the substitute, but the miracle of Jesus, what makes him greater, is that he is the substitute. We looked at Galatians 4.4. We'll look at it again and look at verse 5, and it will sort of unfold this idea a little bit fuller. So Galatians 4.4, again, when the time, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. That, that is the promise. But the next verse, verse 5, is the purpose of the promise. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So as we celebrate the Christmas season, we look at the birth of Jesus, the promise. 
and we should. But we also want to look at the death of Jesus this time of year. Because if Jesus doesn't die for sins, his birth is just any other birth. It's really not that important, not that revolutionary. The promise, the promise of the birth is in the death, that he took our place on our cross for our sin, that he substituted himself. Just like the ram was a substitute for Isaac, Jesus is a substitute for us. That's the power of the story. That's what makes Jesus greater. Now, it is true that there was a last-minute miracle for Jesus as well, because as we all know, he did physically die on the cross. He was physically buried, and then on the third day, he physically rose from the dead. God did have a last-minute miracle in store for Jesus. Jesus is alive. The sacrifice that took our place on the cross for our sin did die, yes, but then he did rise from the dead. This validated his claim that he was indeed divine. He was indeed God. So his death gives victory over sin, but his resurrection gives victory over death. That is what makes Jesus greater and what makes his birth worth celebrating this time of year at Christmas. So this Christmas season, hold on to God's promises for your life. Hold on. Those things that you're praying for, believing for, keep praying for them. Keep believing for them. Don't give up on God. Trust his timing. Trust his ways. Trust his methods. Don't try to rush things. Don't try to circumvent the process. Don't try to make it happen. Don't try to force God's hand. Don't try to blackmail. Oh, I'm praying, so you got to come through. It's not how this works. So we have to believe and trust in God, who is the promise giver and is the promise keeper. That's the beauty of Christmas and this whole time of year as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what makes Jesus greater. Let's pray. God, today on this Sunday before Christmas, we do love you, and we do thank you for the greatest gift ever given, your Son, Jesus, whom you sacrificed on the cross. So Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. The substitution was made at the last minute. But Jesus was the substitution. And today we celebrate the fact that you would go to any length, even at great expense to yourself, to rescue fallen mankind, to pay the penalty for their sin, even at the expense of your own son's life. And so we thank you for your ways that are greater than our ways, that your thoughts that are higher than our thoughts, that your timing that is perfect. You come in just at the nick of time, not a minute early, not a minute late, not always when we want you to come or act or do things, but always at the right time. The birth of Jesus was just at the right time. His death was just at the right time. His resurrection was just in time. So God, help us. Give us patience as we wait. Give us grace as we wait. Increase our faith as we wait, to wait patiently, to not try to rush the process, to not get frustrated, to not try to say, well, God, you're not going to come through, to not doubt, but to still believe by faith that, God, you are the way maker, 
You are the miracle worker. You are the promise keeper. And you do it through one who is greater than anyone who was ever born and anyone who has ever lived, and that is your son, Jesus. So we celebrate his birth, death, and resurrection on this Christmas Sunday, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.